Thanks for listening. For earlier access to these episodes, access to Ask Me Anything sessions, and extended breakdowns of historical and current events, please consider joining our warning premium community by clicking the link in the description to this episode. Very pleased to be joined by Congressman Colin Allred. Congressman, welcome. Thanks, Steve. Thanks for having me. You are running for the U.S. Senate from the great state of Texas. If you become the Democratic nominee, you will be facing off against Senator Ted Cruz. Why are you the guy to beat him? Well, listen, I, I think that Texans know that we can't afford six more years of Ted Cruz in the Senate. And Americans should know that we can't afford six more years of Ted Cruz in the Senate. Uh, he's our problem, but he's also the country's problem. Uh, and we know that he's only looking out for himself here in Texas. Everybody knows that about him. Ted Cruz is on Team Ted. You know, I have a very different story, uh, one that's been was based in uh, it being raised by a single mother who was a public school teacher and having to rely on my community, uh, you know, my teachers and my coaches, my local YMCA, to kind of chase my version of the American dream. And that led me to Baylor, where I captained the football team, had five years in the NFL, went to law school and served in the Obama administration, and then ran for Congress against a 22-year incumbent, a Republican who had been unopposed in the previous election uh, because he was considered to be so uh, unbeatable. He's the chairman of the Rules Committee. Uh, we beat him by nearly seven points. So we know how to do this. We know how to, uh, you know, I think, appeal to folks who maybe feel like this version of the Republican Party doesn't reflect their values anymore. Uh, but also, uh, you know, to make sure that we tell kind of the story about who we are uh, as a people. And I think we're not who Ted Cruz says we are. And that's what this race is going to be about fundamentally, uh, is that Ted Cruz wants to divide us. He wants to pit us against each other. He's a demagogue. Uh, I'm somebody who spent my life and career trying to bring us together around our shared values. Uh, and I think that's why we're going to win. Let me ask you a question, and I want to frame it not by asking you through the prism of Congressman Alred. I want to I want to back up. Sure. I want to back up to the young man raised by a single mom, supported by his community at the YMCA, who winds up as the captain of the Baylor football team and winds up playing in the National Football League the values of being on a team, leading a team, the concept of responsibility, where did you learn it from? Where are your seminal experiences? Um, what was that moment in your life uh, where someone imparted to you, hey, um, it doesn't matter if you didn't do it, you're in charge. It's your fault. Yeah. You're responsible yeah. for what goes on here. And then and then how do you think about this moment? You're sitting in Congress and your state senator during a crisis in the state. People have lost their electricity, very serious set of circumstances going on. And he goes to Cancun. And so you're sitting there thinking, what? 
uh, about about this guy as a matter of character. So I just I'm I'm curious about who you are, where you come from, and how you think about what I what I what I feel is a fundamental and elemental issue in the in the country, which is this crisis of character. Yeah. Well, I you know I want to thank you for that question because uh, I, I think it's a it's an illuminating one. Um, you know, so I grew up. I, I never met my father, uh, and uh, I had to find you know, male role models, uh, and also find you know some of the values that I think uh, you know young men in particular in this time are, are looking for. And, and I think we're in a difficult time. Uh, you know, as a country, as you said, around accountability and around responsibility and leadership, but we're also in a really strange time around you know masculinity and and where I think uh, young men are learning their lessons from. Uh, and I was fortunate because I had so many men who stepped up in my life, from my uncle, uh, who was my mom's sister's husband, who helped raise me like a father and was you know the guy who was at every game of mine, I didn't meet him until I was seven years old, but after that, he was always there. And, uh, and he's been a huge part of my life uh, to, you know, YMCA counselor uh, named Derek Smith, who is a former college basketball player who was in my launch video when I ran for Congress. Like we've been friends since I was seven years old, uh, you know, to the coaches who I think went above and beyond to kind of recognize that there might be some potential in me and to try and bring it out. Uh, but I wouldn't be who I am were it not for football. And, and I, I say that as somebody who understands better than anyone some of the downsides of football. I mean, I was severely injured. Uh, that's why my career ended, is that I had to have neck surgery. I have a plate and two screws in my neck. Uh, so I understand the downside of football. But I also understand the upside uh, and, and what it teaches you about accountability, which is a word that is just foreign to Washington right now, but also to our politics. I mean, you want to talk about accountability. In a football game, uh, we know, we used to always say the eye in the sky doesn't lie. The next morning, we're going to watch the tape. We're going to roll it back. We're going to do it in slow motion. We're going to talk about who did what, who didn't do what, and we're going to hold people accountable. And and so in that moment, because you know that, there's no, there's none of this kind of like boasting and lying and this idea that, you know, you would just sort of try and get by on what people can't prove because it's all right there. And I came from that that kind of a world where, uh, you know, you're going to be held accountable, but also where, particularly if you're in a position of leadership, and I was a captain in my high school team, my college team, I became a leader in the NFL before I, my career ended, uh, where you have other other talented, you know, young men looking to you for leadership. And what, in my experience, what they're looking for, you know, isn't the most blusterous person, uh, isn't the person who, uh, you know, takes all the credit, but doesn't put in the work. What they're looking for, particularly in football, uh, is somebody who's accountable, uh, who holds himself accountable first before they hold anyone else accountable, uh, who is the hardest worker in the room, and who you're following them in part because you want to be like them, you want to take that work ethic they have and apply it and, and learn how to use it yourself. Um, but also, you know, I, I think it, it's somebody who, uh, can understand the differences in, in, in people and appeal to people in different ways at different times. Uh, you know, in a football team, I, we come from so, 
so many different backgrounds. I mean, the NFL was hilarious to me. So you'd have a kid, you know, from the most country kid in the world who'd never really set foot inside of a city almost, um, sitting right next to and being brothers with somebody who'd never left the inner city, right? Uh, and it's it happens. It happens every day in a football locker room. And we don't see that in in the outside world too much, unfortunately, uh, because we have you know so many of these narratives about the differences that we have. Whereas I've seen the similarities that we have kind of outweigh them. Uh, and I think when I think about Ted Cruz, the word that does come to mind is accountability. He's completely un unaccountable uh, from, as you said, and you mentioned when we had a statewide freeze here in Texas, uh, where you know Texans were under boil water advisories because you know, they couldn't trust the water in their sinks to drink. Uh, whether they were literally trying to take pieces of wood and burn it for warmth, where people were dying from carbon monoxide poisoning because they were bringing generators inside indoors and they were going to sleep and waking up and not waking up from that. And that happened to folks in my district at that time when we needed you know FEMA, our state agencies. I remember I was on the phone with our county folks trying to find warming centers, which is just, you know, big buildings that had the heat on. But that's when Ted Cruz decided to go on vacation to Cancun. And he only came back, to, you know, Stephen, we don't kind of remember this. He only came back because he was caught. Somebody took a picture of him on, and put it on Twitter. That's why he came back. And when he did, he blamed his daughter. And, you know, as a football player, I'm sitting there thinking, no, 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 you're accountable for this. <laughs> this was your decision, right? And, uh, and of course, I think, and I'm sure we'll talk about it, but he also had a role in January 6th uh, that that we need to talk about. And I think that he has to be held accountable for. Uh, and that's what the selection is going to be about in a lot of ways. Do you do you consider yourself an optimist? I do. Yeah, I'm a, an incurable optimist. Genetically speaking. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah right? I think so. Yeah, I come by it naturally. Yeah. Do, do, you, do you recall the moment being conscious of the play that ended your career that oh, you yeah. were hurt that this is it i'm not playing mm -hmm. football anymore at the moment when it happened mm -hmm. yeah so for me uh it was a big deal because i'm a dallas kid uh, born and raised in dallas uh and i was playing the cowboys in dallas uh, you know for the titans and my mom and my aunt and uncle were in the stands uh and i got hit the the wrong way on a power running play by marion barber um, who was the Cowboys running back at the time. Um, and it wasn't like a big hit. It just, I had a, I had been dealing with neck issues. And I, if, if I could hit a certain way, then I was getting these really severe, what we call stingers. But this one was, was, was the worst one I'd had. And my right arm was, was useless. Uh, and I was lying on the turf and, uh, Martellus Bennett actually was a tight end was on top of me and he, he could tell there was something wrong. And he asked me if I was okay. And I told him, I don't think I am. But I was honestly lying there. And I think this is the first time this has ever happened. I was lying on the turf there in Cowboy City and thinking, uh, you know, I'm, I'm so ready to go to law school. <laughs> you know, like I've, this is, we've reached the end of this stage. Um, I could, I had an offer to keep playing after my next surgery from the Vikings to come and basically a one-year deal, see if you can make the team. But I decided that it was time to, to, to hang it up. Uh, go to law school and I knew in that you know from the time I was lying there on the turf I knew it was my last play after the game my mom asked me about next week and I told her mom I don't think it was going to be next week um and, and that was it were you sad about it 
Yes and no. I felt like I had accomplished what I wanted to accomplish, which I wanted to prove that I could play in the NFL because I had been an undrafted free agent. Uh, and if anybody knows anything about the NFL, you know that, uh, you know, there's seven rounds of the draft. That means, you know, 32 teams took to look at me seven times and said no, at least, although some of them had more than seven picks in that draft. Uh, and you come into the training camp and, and there's 10, 12, 13 linebackers ahead of you in the queue and you're going to keep six. Uh, and, you know, it's a, it's an incredibly, you know, uh, cutthroat league in terms of the business decisions that are made when it comes to cut time. Uh, and the way you make it is by showing value. If you're not somebody who has value because they put so much money into you, which is one thing, then you have to show value by doing things that no one else can do or doing more than anyone else can do. And so the way I made it was, uh, you know, I, I played all the special teams. I was a special teams ace. I was one of our best special teams players. But I also learned every linebacker position. I could be a sub for every linebacker position. I came in on every package that required it, uh, an extra linebacker. If anybody got hurt, I came in for them. So we had a 4-3 defense with three linebackers. I played all three. Uh, and I was, I was the number four, basically, in that three-person rotation. And if anybody needed a breather, I came in. Uh, but that made me valuable. I was like a Swiss Army knife. I could do a lot of things. Uh, and I, I learned the whole defense. I could I could be a coach on the sideline. In fact, I helped call plays sometimes. So uh, that was that was what I learned. So I had proven that. But then I was I knew I was going to miss uh, the locker room. And I still miss the locker room. I still miss the interaction with the guys. Uh, because the, the thing that everybody always asks me, what do you miss about the NFL? I think they're probably thinking I'm going to say, you know, the big hits or the crowd or whatever but no it means it's the it's like the comedy that is a locker room like the, laughing the, yeah the brotherhood like the making fun of each other for stupid things like relieving tension you know by <laughs> goofing off you know uh that that's the thing i think you know you can you sometimes see it if you watch like hard knocks or something like that but man i, I miss those days so you go to law school, you graduate law school, and you do some government service and not to hit the fast forward track too much, but you wind up in the United States Congress uh, elected. And there's an apocryphal story, I suspect, about a new member of Congress who gets there, takes the oath, looks around in complete awe, wondering how is it that I got here? And after a couple of months, uh, secure in their presence, they look around and think, how did all these other people get here? And so, so what is your version of that, of that story as a, as a new congressman sitting there taking it all in? Um, the proverbial, I suspect, Houston, we have, a, we have a problem here in the institution. Yeah. Well, that's, that's such a good question. I think it's funny um, that uh, you say that. Uh, because actually, when I came in, I thought the, the quality, the level of quality, I thought was was pretty high um, in the Congress. And I actually think that in my time, it's gone down. Um, you know, we I came in where, you know, uh, uh, Liz Cheney was the conference chair of, of the Republican caucus. And, you know, I respected her. I had friends on the Republican side who I knew were, you know, conservative, but um, you could work with. And I, I kind of knew where they were coming from. Um, and I, and, you know, and as you go around, particularly in our class, the class of 2018 on the democratic side, we had a tremendous number of people who came in who had come from a service background of some kind, whether that's military service or serving in the intelligence agencies or serving in previous administrations like I had, or 
you know, and I think we all came in because we thought that the country was at risk um, from a out of control president uh, and an administration that had to have at least one check in place. And at the time, we had a Republican Senate uh, with Mitch McConnell in the leadership. Uh, we had, of course, President Trump. And so we had to have at least one of the levers of power that was able to to check what they were what he was doing. Um, but I was sworn in during the longest shutdown in our history. Uh, we had, uh, you know, a pandemic with two impeachments. You know, it just it was a very chaotic you know, first few years. Um, and and I, I'm, I'm very you know concerned about the incentive structure that I've seen in the Congress, uh, which is, you know, if you're the you know, Matt Gates or Marjorie Taylor Greens of the world or the Ted Cruz's of the world, uh, you know, you can make a lot of money in terms of fundraising and get a lot of attention by doing things that are, that are the worst for the country, that are just destroying the country, that are pitting people against each other, That's you know, that are not based in fact either, which I know is an issue that you, you've talked a lot about. Uh, and when you get that kind of positive reinforcement, as you know, in this business, which is different from football, where there's that accountability element, then you get you see that it, that it's helping you, and then you get more of it. You get more of it, and, and it starts to build, and it, and it becomes something that other people see you succeeding with that, and then they want to be like that because they don't want to be left out on on kind of the gravy train, and so you get this kind of really negative, positive reinforcement from it, uh, and that's where I think we are right now, uh, where you know doing the right thing, and I think of the eleven. Republicans who joined us in, on the second impeachment vote in the House uh, for after January 6th, uh, you know, I think, you know, they're all gone uh, with, with a few exceptions. They were, um, you know, primaried or they decided not to run for reelection because they, like in the case of my friend Anthony Gonzalez, who I played with in the NFL, you know, his family was receiving threats. Uh, he felt like it was unsafe for him in some ways to remain in the United States Congress. Uh, you know, then you get this also this cycle where then they're replaced by worse members and worse members and it gets worse and worse and worse. And that, that's what I've been seeing. And I think Ted Cruz, in many ways, was part of the vanguard of doing that to the United States Senate. Uh, he has made the Senate a much worse place. Uh, and that's part of why we need to replace him. Ron DeSantis, uh, this weekend, and it is August 6th, 2023. He finally said it. And he said it matter of fact, Trump lost the election. Mm -hmm. Could have saved yeah. a lot of lot of pain and a lot of trouble if if he had come to that conclusion like I did at about eleven fifteen on a on election night. Yeah. Well, I think I've heard this before and I think it's true. Um I recognize that it takes individual bravery at this point, uh, to come forward on, in the Republican Party and say the facts, which is that you know Donald Trump lost the last election, that it was a, a fair and free election, uh, and that it was, you know, in, in some cases, he lost narrowly, but he did lose, and that Joe Biden is the legitimate president of the United States, and that we should move on from there. Um, but I do think that if there had been a critical mass around it, or if a few leaders had stepped forward and, and you know, been more vocal, then that bravery would have been a lot less. And so I'm glad to see someone saying it now, honestly, because I think, as I think you do as well, Steve, I think about the long scope of American history and I think about where we're going and I think about where we've been. And I, I'm, I'm extremely concerned about, um, you know, where we're going. And so we have to have this kind of bipartisan rejection of 
the first time in our history we didn't have a peaceful transfer of power. Um, and in the days after January 6th, uh, I thought we were going to have that. You know, Kevin McCarthy gave a, a solid speech, uh, you know, in many ways where he said that the president, you know, bore the responsibility for the attack on the Capitol. Mitch McConnell, I think, also was saying and speaking from the same hymn book, uh, maybe even being more forceful. Uh, and, and I thought that in those those short few days afterwards, but then we saw the shift and it, what has set in is something that if it were happening in another country, you know, we would say you know, that their democracy is in serious peril. Um, and and so, you know, I, I think it's, I'm glad to hear Ron DeSantis say it now. I wish that more Republican leaders had said it from the very beginning, like you said. I have a, um, I think like most people in politics, I have boxes where I've accumulated all sorts of knickknacks and <laughs> photographs and, and everything else over the years. And I was going through one of those boxes and in it, I found an old Blackberry and, and I picked it up and I said, huh? I said, this is the Blackberry that I used. And it's the one I handed John McCain that he used to place his concession phone call to Barack <laughs> Obama. And it was on this phone um, that he became the first person really who mattered, who addressed yeah. Senator Obama uh, by what we now know him as, as, as President Obama. And, and he addressed him and congratulated him as Mr. President-elect. And when you look at the conspiracy of lies that has stripped faith and belief in the outcome of what was the freest and most fair election in American history, as a matter of fact, there is nobody, with the exception of Donald Trump, who did more to undermine that reality, that truth, than, than Ted Cruz. That's right. And so there are two parts to the American crisis that we that we face in my estimation. The first is the crisis of lying and liars and the inability as a result to be able to differentiate between what's real and what's false. And the second issue is a crisis of cowardice. And that is emblematic of what you described in Kevin McCarthy, who we know through his own words and his own responses, judging incorrectly that his party would have no tolerance for an insurrection mm -hmm. when in fact it turned out that it did, but that he knew it was wrong what he was watching. And in the end, he kowtowed to the worst impulses out of out of expediency. And he's certainly not alone. But atop of the pyramid, when it comes to dishonesty, premeditated, absolute dishonesty, lying at a pathological level, and then the cowardice defined as accommodating and accepting 
everything that you once denounced as wrong and is manifest for your reasons to running for the U.S. Senate in the first place. And Ted Cruz is on top of that pyramid as well. And so what I wanted to ask you is to talk about his dishonesty and to talk about the cowardice because they're real. They're elemental in the race. And I say this as someone who grew up in New Jersey, who lives in Utah, to you as a Texan. You're not pulling your weight, sending Ted Cruz to the United States Senate. In the same way, Utah isn't pulling its weight by sending Mike Lee to the Senate although somewhat redeems itself by sending Mitt Romney to the United States Senate. But at the end of the at the end of the day, all of these people aren't just showing up in Washington. They're being sent there. And what's really remarkable from someone who's not a Texan, but appreciates Texas's history, how does Texas accommodate the dishonesty and the cowardice, which seems so, if you understand Texas history, mm -hmm. antithetical to the values of the state. Yeah, no, that's, I think that's exactly right. I think you go back to uh, Ted Cruz's uh, speech at the 2016 Republican convention where he told people to vote their conscience. And you fast forward uh, to four years later where he uh, is the Senator who objected to the results in Arizona. Uh, really quickly, I just, I just want to talk about January 6th because I was there and I was about 50 feet away from Senator Cruz when, when he objected. Uh, I was a member of the House leadership team and, and we had a limited number of members on the floor because of COVID. Uh, and so I was on the floor uh, and I remember, you know, when we were going through the states, you know, Alabama, Alaska, we get to Arizona. As you know, it takes a member of the House, a member of the Senate to object. Uh, to the counting of the Electoral College votes of a particular state. Uh, and Paul Gosar, you know, there's always a kind of crackpot member of the House who objects. That happens almost every session, as we we know. Uh, but there's usually not a senator. You know, Paul Gosar objects in the House. And who's the senator, of course, who stands up? You know, it's my junior senator, you know, Ted Cruz. And I'm sitting there thinking, what does Ted know at all about what happened in the election in Arizona? He knows nothing about it. But fast forward just a few minutes later, we split into our separate uh, house remains in the house. The Senate goes back to the Senate separate sessions to debate the results in Arizona. Uh, and I start getting texts from my staff and from my wife asking me where I am. I'm kind of annoyed because I'm on the house floor. I'm working, you know, where I am. I'm in the safest place in the country outside of the white house. Uh, and, you know, but they were seeing a very different story playing out on TV. They were seeing this mob that was starting to breach the Capitol. Uh, and, I remember they interrupted our results. They swept the leadership teams out of, off the floor. Uh, we put Jim McGovern in the chair. We're trying to continue the proceedings. And at some point, the Sergeant at Arms representative from Sergeant at Arms gets on the microphone and tells us that uh, the Capitol has been breached, uh, that uh, tear gas has been deployed in the rotunda, which I just, to me, is just unimaginable. This like you know, temple of American democracy. Anybody who's ever been to the Capitol, look up in the rotunda and tell me you don't feel something. Uh, and to reach under our seats for these gas masks that are underneath there that I didn't even know were there. And I sent my wife a text that I 
who was at home uh, with seven months pregnant with our son, Jordan, who wasn't yet two years old. And she was seven months pregnant with our next son, Cameron. Uh, and I sent her a text. That I didn't really think I'd ever have to send in this job. You know, I said to her, you know, whatever happens, I love you. And you know, being the only former NFL linebacker on the floor, <laughs> I take off my suit coat and I'm literally preparing to have to defend a door because uh, we have barricaded the doors with furniture we use for paper uh, and the few the few uh, capital police who are part of kind of the protective detail of the floor who are there in suits have their guns drawn and there's no way out at this point. And some of my colleagues joined me and took off their suit jackets, some of the particularly of the, of the younger men. And at that point, you know, I thought that might be where we'd have to make a stand. Luckily, the Capitol Police, due to their bravery, and I mean their incredible bravery, got us off the floor. But while that was happening, Ted Cruz, who had whipped up that mob and who had gone around the country talking about how this was a steal and, and, and who was, as we learned later, part of the legal backing for trying to challenge this and who was implementing the legal strategy, which was to try and delay, 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 uh, you know, he was hiding in a supply closet. And I think it does say something about uh, who he is. And I don't think it matches who we are as Texans. I, I know our history well, and we're a state that's proud of, of our uh, history as a, that fought for its own independence, that was its own nation, the Lone Star State, but also that has had a long line of leaders, whether you agreed with them or not, or not uh, who were independent, strong voices, who didn't just follow, but who led, you know, from George W. Bush to LBJ, uh, to Sam Rayburn, to Barbara Jordan, a long line, George H.W. Bush, of, you know, Americans who, whether you agreed with them politically or not, you have to say that they, that they were independent leaders who stepped forward and were an important voice for the country. Ted Cruz is not that. He's someone who is, you know, he knows the difference also, Steve. I think we both know that. He knew that uh, Donald Trump lost that election. He's a Harvard-trained lawyer. Uh, he's somebody who uh, knew what he was doing to the country, but he had decided that it was in his political interest to do this. And that has to be punished in the, at the ballot box. Uh, we're seeing Donald Trump getting some element of accountability uh, through his indictments and arraignment. We'll see where the trial goes. A jury of his peers will decide. But for Ted Cruz, that accountability is going to come in this election in a state that he only won by two points last time and that we can beat him in this time because it's not who we are as Texans. When you when you think about Ted Cruz hiding in the closet, you just said something, and I want to bring you to that moment. You said it very calmly. Uh, a lot of Texas in you the way you said it, a lot of cowboy. You were preparing to make your stand. Tell me about that. What does that mean? Yeah, well, as I said, I when I sent that text to my wife, it's the kind of text I think you you see. And, and I, we've learned later that Mike Pence's Secret Service detail was also contacting their families and telling them, we don't think we're going to make it out of here and saying their goodbyes. I was in a very different situation uh, because I had a number of my colleagues who are older and who were looking to me in many ways, I think, to defend them. Uh, and my thought was, you know, maybe uh, we can hold this off long enough so that the other folks can get off the floor. That was my thought in the moment. Obviously, uh, and thankfully, it didn't come to that. But I, all of the doors had been locked, Steve. 
the alarms are going off. People are putting on these hoods. I call them gas masks, these hoods to protect against tear gas. Uh, it, it looks like there's no way out. And you a few of us. On? No, I didn't. I didn't put it on. Uh, because, I, I was holding because, it because you're getting you're getting ready to fight. Yeah, I was holding it. I didn't know, you know, right. I didn't smell anything. I didn't feel like it was necessary. Ruben Gallego, uh, who, you know, uh, is a Marine, uh, is standing on top of some of the chairs telling people, when you put on your mask, breathe slowly so that you don't hyperventilate. Uh, and at that moment, it just seems very much like this is what's going to be necessary. And I, I don't mean that in, a, in, a, in any way to indicate uh, that, uh, you know, that to make myself seem any braver or anything like that. Of course, of course not. But I think this is important. Are there any Republicans standing at that door, at that rampart with you in common defense of their colleagues? Yeah, there are. There are. And I give them a lot of credit for it. And, uh, uh, you know, they, we had in that moment, I, I think, and I know from the time when we exited the floor, we all, I think, felt very similarly about it. And yeah, we had uh, some Republicans who were standing right there. Uh, and I, I, I think, uh, you know, Troy Niels comes to mind. Uh, I'm forgetting some of the other names, but, uh, you know, I think there were some folks who were willing uh, to do uh, the right thing and, and to be, you know, sort of help, help these very few Capitol Police in any way they could. And I, one of the things I think, that was shocking to to people probably to learn was how few Capitol Police were having to do against so many uh, and protect that that line. And I, you know, Brian Sicknick's family was present on the anniversary of the sixth. He's the officer who died on January sixth, and his family was there when we were speaking about it uh, in the Capitol. And I I spoke directly to, to his family, and I meant it. I said, you know, your son's sacrifice allowed me to meet mine. I was able to get off that floor because they held those lines, you know, and they described as medieval combat. Uh, and when we left, I remember looking back and seeing the officers staying behind with their guns drawn uh, and the glass breaking. And I remember thinking, well, what about what about these guys? You know, what about them? And I remember thinking about the incredible sacrifice they were making for us, because at, at that time, we didn't know that, you know, the the riot was going to subside in some way. It just, it, you have to put yourself in the place where we were so close to an event of mass violence that Americans have no idea for the most part. And I think that's one of the great uh, services that the January 6th committee did was illustrating for people just how close senators, member of Congress, but also our, our brave police officers came uh, to, you know, something that, uh, you know, was more akin to a civil war uh, era battle than, than to anything we were used to. No doubt, no doubt in my mind whatsoever that Officer Eugene Goodman saved Mitt Romney's life. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, um, he didn't. You know, he uh, he he turned that crowd around, and Romney was around the corner, and that would have they would have killed him. Mm -hmm. um, would have been, you know, of all the senators, right? That that mob would have had first contact with. I I can't imagine. Yeah, that's right. Uh, the worst one, you know, to that would have had a had a terrible, terrible fate. Um. You know, then, then no, and Romney in there. So, so when you go out now, Better O'Rourke loses by two points. Where are you going to make that up? Where, when you look at, and I'm not, 
I'm not trying to put you on the spot to criticize Beto Beto O'Rourke, but um, he didn't get the job done against Ted Cruz in a difficult state. It's a Republican state, um, which means you're going to have to get a lot of Republican votes for you. So what are you going to say to those to those people, um, many millions of whom uh, have been brainwashed, frankly, to to some degree? Um, you know, look, I have relatives in my family, you know, that I try to convince, you know, Seattle didn't burn down under the Black Lives Matter riots of two years ago. Portland is still there. It doesn't look like Hiroshima in 19 in 1945. Yeah. Right. What, what yeah. are you going to say to those Republicans um, that you need, that you're a different type of Democrat for the for the state of Texas? What's your proposition? Yeah. Well, you know, first of all, you know, of course, we're going to build on what you know, Beto did. And I think his run is incredibly important. And I want to give him um, credit for doing something at a time when no one else would. And it took a lot of bravery and, and a lot of effort. And that's why we're having this conversation in many ways. It's because of the, the race that he ran. Uh, but I do have experience you know, running in these uh, areas where the only way you're going to win uh, is by appealing to folks who might not agree with you on everything. You know, I'd be a 22 year incumbent, as I said, who uh, was entrenched in a district that uh, to not use too technical of a term was considered an R plus five district. So leaned five points more Republican than the rest of the country. Uh, and, you know, we did that also by getting a lot of folks who a decade earlier were driving around our area with W stickers on the back of their car, uh, you know, voting for me uh, and block walking for me uh, and you know contributing to our campaign. Uh, and as, a, you beat, as you beat Pete Sessions, that's right. Pete not, Sessions in not 2018. Opponent. Like, I mean, Pete Sessions was a good politician. Yeah. I mean, he's the, had been the chair of the NRCC Absolutely. twice. And, uh, you know, he was the chairman of the rules committee, which as you know, is, is kind of the leadership's position for somebody who is important to them. Uh, you know, the vice president, uh, the, the uh, speaker of the house all came to the district, uh, Lev Parnas and Igor Freeman and, uh, uh, Rudy Giuliani came down and spent a bunch of Russian money trying to beat me, funneled through the Trump super PAC, which got them indicted by the Southern District of New York. But we didn't know that during the campaign. Um, but we did it by, uh, I think, appealing to, as I said earlier, these kind of universal values uh, that I think are are sitting there underneath the surface and waiting for someone to come along and say, listen, we're not as different as the cable news is telling you we are. Like that, uh, you know, I know that we can have arguments about the size and scope of government, but there are certain things that shouldn't be up for debate. Uh, and then also, you know, we're a community. And in this community, uh, there are certain values that we have that are unique to other places that are not, we're different from other places. And I was born and raised in my district and I knew what those values were. Uh, you know, my mom had taught in public schools in that district. I'd gotten to public school in that district. The hospital that I was born in is the one that I represented. Uh, and, you know, and, and also by understanding who we are and what, you know, what our economy is based on, I'm somebody who has the rare uh, distinction of being endorsed by the U.S. Chamber of Commerce in my last two elections against Republicans, uh, against Republican business people, uh, because they, I've been a pro-business Democrat who understands, you know, what our economy needs. Uh, you know, I'm part of the reason why the USMCA passed the U.S.-Mexico-Canada trade agreement is because me and uh, Henry Cuellar and a few other Texas Democrats really pushed for that because we're a trade state and we understand how important 
uh, trade is to Texas, but also at the same time, I've been endorsed by the AFL-CIO, and I'm a former union member myself as a member of the NFL Players Association, and I appreciate uh, the right to organize. And so you, it is possible uh, to uh, appeal broadly and to try to find uh, this common ground. And, and it's not going to work for everybody, and I recognize that, Steve. There's, there are folks who, in my congressional races, I thought I did a pretty good job in Congress, but in my re-election, they, they weren't going to vote for me. And that's that's okay. I respect their vote. But what we are trying to do is make sure folks know that whether you vote for me or not, I'm going to be your representative. And that's a big difference from Ted Cruz, who, if you don't, if you're not part of his group, if you're not part of kind of the, the small slice of, of sort of the you know, Texans who came out in that election and got him over the line to win that election, uh, then he doesn't, he's not interested in what you think. He's not going to be your senator as well. He's going to be podcasting three times a week, demagoguing about you, going on Fox News, talking about you. He's going to be pointing out problems, for example, at the border, but never trying to be a part of the solution. He's unlike John Cornyn, you know, not going to, after Uvalde, try and pass the Safer Communities Act which got John Cornyn in a lot of trouble with the Republican Party, but it was the right thing to do the first time in 30 years we'd done anything to prevent gun violence uh, in this country. He's not like John Cornyn who voted for the Chips and Science Act, which is bringing high-tech manufacturing back to our state. He's not like John Cornyn who voted not to default on the country. He, want, he voted to default. Uh, he's somebody who is just looking out for himself and who I think gives us a chance to talk to that middle and say, listen, you know, I, I understand. You may not agree with Democrats on everything, I recognize that. Uh, I'm going to meet you here in the middle and say, we're going to agree on the fundamental things. And I'm somebody who, uh, if you give me uh, the faith to to vote for me, I'll be your senator too. And I'll be uh, somebody who'll listen to you and I'll care about what's best for you, not what's best for me. When you talk to an audience of Texans, what what do you say to them about what makes you anxious about the Democratic Party today? What what is yeah. what is the uh, you know when you I, I remember my days you know I was always a moderate Republican and yeah. you know as the party started to go off the rails I was an early voice you know going back you know, a long time now um, you know saying wow this is times are changing and not not in a good way anything you worry about with the Absolutely. direction of the of the Democratic Party do you get why so many working class people are estranged from the from the Democratic Party in the country? And what do you say to national Democrats about what's going on on the on the border? Right. Mm -hmm. That's that's distinct. You know. Uh, what what don't they know in Washington about what's going yeah. on in the border in Texas that you that you share with them, I guess, is. The yeah. Yeah. Well, I. I I agree with you in terms of, uh, you know, kind of seeing, being able to look at your own party and saying, listen, I, I'm a member of this party, but we've got some some issues we need to talk about. And for us, it's, you know, I think it's a sense of elitism. It's this idea that, um, you know, sort of a highly educated class of kind of eggheads know what's best for everyone. And, you know, I'm somebody who made my living until I went to law school with my hands and with the sweat off my brow and literally with my, the blood that, that I would shed on the football field. I know what it's like to shower after work instead of before work, which is something Ted Cruz has no idea about, by the way, 
because you know the work he's done has never been dependent on sweating it out in the 100 degree heat in Texas uh, and you know, testing yourself against someone else the way that, that we did in football. And that, you know, and you don't have to do that uh, to have an understanding, but I, it's certainly something that gave me that. Uh, and I think in our party, we are in real danger uh, of losing folks who do make their living the sweat off their brow and who work hard every day and who don't think anybody has given them any advantages uh, and who look around and see people saying that, oh, well, you know, you, you're, you've benefited from this, that, and the other. And they say, I don't feel that way about myself. You know, I, I, my father worked hard. My mom worked hard. I'm working as hard as I possibly can. I feel like I'm barely getting ahead. Who are you talking about? And that kind of, you know, lack of empathy and understanding of, of the working man and woman, uh, and also just understanding that, yeah, I mean, you know, uh, there are things that we have done wrong in our history, but we have a broader story to tell about, about where we're going. That is a great story, but let's not spend all of our time relitigating the past. And this is on both parties. And I, I hate the both sidesism, but in some cases you'll see us saying, well, you know, let's go back and find every single person who was a building is named after and, you know, and let's change that. Or on the Republican side, of course, we're seeing them saying, let's teach that slavery was good for the slaves. But there's a real story to tell, which is that we have a lot of flaws, but that the genius of our constitution and of our country is that it is capable of changing and that it has, and that we perfected our union over time. And so that's a better story to tell. It's an exciting story to tell. Um, now, when it comes to the border, I think you know, my, my grandfather was a customs officer in Brownsville after World War II. He fought in the Navy in the Pacific uh, and he came back and he, he never went to college and he got a good job working for the customs department. And in Brownsville at the very tip of Texas, uh, which is you know, right on the border. And my mom and my aunt grew up in Brownsville and I spent most of my childhood driving with my mom from Dallas down to Brownsville uh, to visit my grandmother there because my grandfather passed before I was born. Uh, and so I understand, you know, what the, our border communities are. And I, and I think that what people don't grasp nationally is the burden that falls on these border communities from our inability to deal with immigration and immigration reform. And it's, it's not just the border itself, but it's, it's the fact that, you know, you have Catholic charities that are focused in, in the Valley in Texas that, uh, and along the border that are completely, you know, uh, all of their resources are, are ex you know, overextended. You have local communities who have set up through their own charity, uh, you know, agencies and institutions to try and help migrants. And they're maxed out. I mean, people sleeping under bridges, people being released and sleeping on street corners. And it's frustrating for people who live in that community because, uh, you know, number one, uh, they're not responsible for it and there's not much that they can do, but they're already putting in so much of their own resources and energy, trying to do the right thing to treat people in a humane way. But that's why we need to have, uh, you know, a Senator from Texas who will actually talk about, okay, well, let's, let's, let's do something about this for the first time since the Reagan era. Let's have a comprehensive agreement where we say, yeah, we're going to have a whole lot of money for border security. We're going to make this as secure as we possibly can. But let's also reshape our immigration system so that we can process people more quickly, we can process asylum claims better, we have more immigration judges in place so that Border Patrol agents aren't spending all their time doing uh, paperwork instead of 
what they're supposed to be doing, uh, and let's better support these border communities because there are geopolitical forces that are forcing millions of Venezuelans to leave Venezuela and, and Haitians to leave Haiti and people from El Salvador and Guatemala and Honduras. And that's going to continue, uh, particularly you know, as climate change and other uh, impacts continue. So we have to deal with this now. It's not going to get better. And that's what I also get frustrated with saying, oh, well, let's just build a wall and act like that'll do it. I mean, get out of here. It's much more than that. Uh, so I think on the Democratic side, this idea that we're, you know, we'll often think that, uh, it, you know, on immigration, that, you know, we, we just need to, uh, uh, you know, welcome everyone. That, that's not going to be possible. Uh, what we have to be able to do is have an immigration system that meets the needs of our economy and that treats people consistent with our values, but that also does secure our border. And we, we you know, and that does it in a way that makes our border communities feel safe, but also not so much of the burden fall on them. Uh, two things I want to wrap up with you on. The first is we're going to have people from all over the country who will see this. Talk for a second to Americans who are not Texans. What does it mean to you to be a Texan? Yeah, well, I think we're a, we're a mix. I'm a fourth generation Texan. My boys are fifth generation Texans. We're a mix. We're not just Southern and we're not just Western. You know, we're Southwestern uh, and we have, we're a place where so many things come together. We're an incredibly diverse state uh, that is uh, disproportionately young in terms of our population. We are dynamic. Like we're growing so rapidly. We have a thousand people a day moving to DFW alone. Uh, and things are so much bigger in Texas. And we're talking about 30 million Texans. Uh, we're talking about, you know, driving from Dallas to El Paso. You know, it's about half the, the, the country uh, and you're still in the same state, <laughs> you know, and uh, we're a state that has produced, I think, some of the most authentic aspects of American culture, you know, um, and and it's come from multiple different backgrounds, you know, whether that's, uh, you know, our, our incredibly vibrant Latino community and culture or the African-American community that has, uh, you know, uh, I think from Texas has produced some of the, the national leaders that um, have helped shape our country, uh, you know, to kind of the independent, you know, Texan who's seen as the person who will be the straight talking Texan in any scenario. And so it, it's a state of, of a lot of uh, inconsistencies, of course, like any, like any place. Uh, but, you know, in, in my experience, and I, I really mean this, I would not have been able to do what I've done were it not for the people that I grew up around. Uh, they looked out for me. Uh, they took me into their homes. And in some cases, they uh, extended uh, open hand to me at a time when looking like I do uh, in the 80s and 90s in Texas, uh, they could have gone a different way. Uh, and so, you know, I, I think we're a state that also believes in doing big things. And that's one of the things I, you know, I find frustrating about where we are politically, because we uh, we have such small minded leaders, I think, in place right now. What does it mean to you to be an American? Well, I think that's a a great question. You know, I was a voting rights lawyer before I came to Congress, and I revere our democracy. Uh, and I think it's the root of all of our strengths, whether that's our economic strength, uh, our military strength. It's all based on it's a free people who uh, have chosen their own way. But I think America's a miracle. I really do. And you look at, I was a history major at Baylor. Uh, you look at kind of the scope of the world. 
uh, and you see, you know, the a Senate in Rome that that couldn't make it, a democracy in Athens that couldn't make it, uh, and then you have a long gap of monarchies and dictators, uh, and you for the first time in human history, you know, since the Roman Senate, you have a, a democracy emerge uh, in this new world uh, that becomes the world's leading power, and that has spread this incredible kind of ideology and thought around the world to the point where now, uh, while we're concerned about democracy, I think falling back in certain places, uh, it, it's become sort of the baseline that people think this is what should be expected. Uh, and to me, you know, being an American means that you can do anything. There's no limit on what we can do. And I, I, that's one of the things that I, I, I love when Joe Biden says it actually, is when he says, you know, come on, like remember who we are. This is the United States of America. There's nothing that we've ever put our mind to that we can't do. Uh, I just have been reading a book about the uh, the space race and and the Apollo program and you know just sort of the ingenuity and the talent that we brought together to to do something that we still aren't doing right now. We're still not going to the moon right now. Here here we are, you know, sixty years later, uh, and uh, you know anything is possible for us. But it's also true uh, that, like all great you know institutions and powers that have come up that we can't be defeated externally we can only be defeated internally there's no the chinese can't aren't an ex, are not an existential threat to us uh the, the russians are not an existential threat to us the, the iranians the north koreans i'm on the foreign affairs committee these are these are these are uh, folks we have to be concerned with sometimes there's we are competing with them in a very real way but they're not an existential threat to the existence of the united states the only thing that is is our own internal issues of how we're going to manage our way forward it's a pluralistic democracy where folks from a lot of different backgrounds and from all different parts of the world have to come together and agree on electing people and electing and accepting the results of those elections uh and it's it's, it's never happened you, you go to europe and their democracies they're not as diverse as our democracy they don't have as many voices and they have all these crazy parties as well you know we are trying to do something that's very difficult uh, and it, leadership matters in this period. It does. And we are not just here because we had this in our system in terms of kind of the challenge we've had to our democracy. We're here because we had, uh, you know, demagogue elected president who used his role uh, to try and uh, attack the foundations of our democracy. And leaders are going to lead us out of this. And it'll be we need Republican leaders as well as Democrats. And that's why, you know, when you mentioned Mitt Romney. I have so much respect for Senator Romney. Uh, for what he is has tried to do, and I have so, so much respect for the folks who I've seen, like Liz Cheney, who's a friend of mine and who I've texted with quite often, uh, who have said what they know is right and have you know, taken a stand at a time when it's difficult for them, it's impossible for them politically, but historically they're going to be looked on quite well. So, to me, being an American means that there's nothing we can't do, but also means that you know, we are responsible for it. No one else is going to do it for us. There's no cavalry coming. Uh, it, it's up to us. How do people find your campaign website? Yeah. Well, uh, they can go to colinallred.com. Uh, I'll spell it for folks because uh, it's one L in Colin and two in all red. Uh, and I'll just say, you know, we need your help. Uh, the way this works, as you know, Steve, is at the federal level, uh, you know, we have limits on, on what we can take from folks. And, and I'm somebody who doesn't take uh, you know, a dime of corporate money. Uh, so I rely on ordinary folks giving what they can to support my campaign. Uh, if you appreciate anything that I've said today, or you think that as a country we can do better, or as a Texans we can do better than Ted Cruz, uh, then go to ColinAllred.com and get involved with us. 
let, let me just wrap up by saying that this experiment, which will soon reach its 250th anniversary in 2026, has never had a gentle or calm period ever across our across our history. And we're clearly in a in another period of testing. Democracy, government of the people, by the people, for the people, uh, cannot endure uh, under the weight of demagogues and liars like Ted Cruz. It's as, it's as simple as that. And so I think everybody who's had an opportunity to see this and to watch you and has an opportunity to vote in the state of Texas understands uh, what an improvement uh, you would be over the, over, the, over the incumbent. One of Texas's great heroes is a man named James Earl Rudder. James Earl Rudder was the commander of the Second Ranger Battalion that stormed the cliffs at Point de Hoc above Omaha Beach on D-Day. And when James Earl Rudder returned to Texas in peace and became the president of A&M, two of the things he did there uh, were admit women uh, with great controversy to the college. And he also took the first steps towards desegregating Texas A&M. So whether service is in the military or service is through academia, the expansion of the American ideal and idea is what people are remembered for. It's what their legacies are built on. And at the moment of testing and crisis, you, Congressman Allred, were prepared to make a stand. Ted Cruz was hiding in a closet. That says it all. The country needs people who will take a stand take a stand for the American way of life. And I really encourage everybody who's listening to do what I will do, which is to send as much as you are able to this campaign, because we're not gonna get out of the mess we're in unless we elect people of outstanding character, men like Colin Allred. Thank you very much, Congressman. Thank you, Steve.